Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ale and Lexi, for leading us in that song and that prayer. Good morning, everyone. Happy Monday. <laughs> Say, so good to see all of you and so great to be back and to begin a new week in a new month together. And uh, this morning, uh, we're actually turning a corner um, in our series on identity that's a part of our overarching theme of abundant life. And particularly, we're looking at identity and culture, and specifically exploring and applying uh, this, this idea is how, how does one's culture uh, impact the way that we understand and live out our identity in Christ? And uh, I mean, no doubt as, as humans, you and I, we still live in a broken and fallen world, and we still have a proclivity towards partiality and prejudice. And while positionally you and I have been reconciled to Christ and to one another, we still have to work that out in practice in our everyday life. And so I, I recognize and I want to, us to engage in this idea of topics like race, ethnicity, and reconciliation no doubt bring to surface a whole mixture of perspectives. But rather than creating division, these topics expose the divisions that still exist, even within God's church. And so uh, our, our hope as we engage in this new idea and this topic in, uh, this next month in, a, in looking at identity and culture is to help us understand our own culture better and how uh, we can actually live out our identity in Christ with more authenticity, with more intentionality, and actually be uh, ambassadors, ones who carry the ministry of reconciliation out into this world. And so uh, for today and tomorrow, um, we have author and pastor Daniel Hill, who's going to be speaking. He's the founding and senior pastor at River City Community Church in Humboldt Park, a neighborhood of Chicago. And Daniel has worked on reconciliation efforts in the city and has contributed to the broader conversation concerning race and justice. And this last, um, about six months ago, picked up his book. One of his books is called White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white. And it's one that I... Uh, took a deep dive into and understanding myself better, my own culture better, and thus has equipped me uh, to be able to live what the live out the kingdom life um, uh, more effectively and and more honestly with more humility. And so um, I want to invite us this morning to really lean in with curiosity, with humility, with faith, and with love. And I want to invite you to please give a warm welcome to Pastor and Author Daniel Hill, stage. And if you would join me, just extend a hand out as we pray over Daniel and for ourselves this morning. Thank you. Thank you. So, Father in heaven, we want to thank you and praise you that we have this opportunity to gather together to encounter you in community. We pray, Jesus, good shepherd of our souls, shepherd us towards abundant living today. Would you work in and through our dear brother Daniel? And would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and that we would have hearts of good soil to receive your truth that uh, drives out deception, that brings freedom, and that would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and to live in light of your kingdom. We love you and thank you, Jesus, for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Northwestern. It's uh, genuinely a joy to be with you. I don't, the, of the different spaces I find myself in, I think there's something about being with undergrad students in a Christian college campus that's always most meaningful to me. Um, I'm sure a lot of that comes out of my own personal experience. I'm a pastor's kid, so I knew all the right answers growing up. But realistically, uh, college years 
without question the darkest time for me. It's when I struggled the most with my faith. It's when I struggled with the most with kind of who I was. Um, just felt very lost, which is probably not how I should open up a session, <laughs> trying to establish myself as a credible speaker. But um, uh, it, it's, it means something deep to me when I see you here on a Monday morning in chapel, preparing yourselves at 18, 19, 20, 21 to give your lives fully to Christ, to give your lives fully to Christ's mission. And um, I, I, I hope I can kind of quickly close this gap to why I think this subject matter is so important, because when we come to know Christ, right, that should transform who we are as individuals and continue to transform us. There's no question about that. And th it's a, such a deep-held belief of mine that Christ is preparing each one of us for mission, right? Not just overseas missionaries, that's certainly being prepared for mission. Every one of us is being prepared for mission. You're being prepared for mission right now, right? You're being prepared by Christ, to be sent by Christ to represent he and his kingdom in the world. And there's so much that comes with that. There's so much that comes with bearing witness to Christ and his kingdom. But I really do think a big part of that is not only coming to know Christ better, but knowing the world we're being sent out into, right? We need to understand what's out there that stands in the way of people being able to fully see Christ and his kingdom. And I'm of the conviction of this day and age that we're in, I actually think it's been this way for a little while, I, I would contend there is no, nothing more confusing and even ferocious in, in its adversarial kind of relationship with Christ and his kingdom than the system of race. When you go out into this world that we're in right now, it is dividing people in the most profound ways. And this is where, and I think we should really have heavy hearts about this. Justin kind of talked about this in his introductory comments, right? We know Christ loves us without question as individuals, but it's his church that represents the body, right? It's the church that represents the body of Christ. And we know from John's letter that Jesus' final prayer was that the church would experience unity, that it would experience oneness. And I think there's a lot of things that divides Christ's church. I'm not trying to say race is the only thing, but really, if you took an analysis of where the North American church is right now, and you could go back quite a ways on this, and you ask, what's at the top of the list that divides Christ's church? What is it that just draws a line right down the middle and leaves white, white Christians on one side and you know, black, indigenous, people of color Christians on the other side? I don't think there's even a close second. Race is just ripping the church in half. And so if you're going to understand how to be formed, how to join Christ in the work that he's doing, we've just got to be thoughtful about what this thing is. And so I'm thankful you guys, well, hopefully you've agreed, at least Justin brought me in. I was going to say thank you for, I'm thankful you brought me in, but maybe you don't want to. <laughs> we'll figure that out at the end. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that we get to take two shots at it because the system of race, I think when we're thinking about it biblically, there's a lot of different layers to it. And so I'm going to come at it from two different sides, one today, one tomorrow. Um, today, in fact, I'll even, I'll even kind of preface with this. There's, when I'm in Christian spaces talking about race, there's two things that I find shut Christians down in this conversation, particularly white Christians, uh, mostly white Christians. Um, first is a lot of us have been groomed to believe, I think falsely so, but a lot of us have been groomed to believe that conversations around race are not a biblical, is not a biblical conversation. That it's not a gospel conversation. There's three words that kills this conversation in Christian white spaces in any particular order. When race gets deemed a social issue, when race gets deemed a political issue, or at least in the world I come from, which was a very Christian conservative environment, when it gets deemed a liberal issue. All right, that's when, uh, that's when I started being seen as the slippery slope, when I, you know, when talking about race uh, appeared to be um, a liberal thing. So 
hopefully between today and tomorrow, and I guess you get to decide if you're gonna come back tomorrow, right? You get to pick how many come to them, so we'll see if you come back for part two or not. Um, but from a human perspective, at least you can like shake your finger at everybody who wasn't here today and be like, haha, I came to it yesterday. So you can get that satisfaction at least. Anyway, I'm just kidding, I'm trying to be light. We're talking about a heavy topic here. So, um, uh, uh, so, what, so the, the, the biggest thing that shuts it down is not believing it's of biblical importance, and hopefully that'll come through. One thing, and, I, I, and nobody wanna probably automatically confess this, but I do think it shuts down the conversation, especially for those of us who are white. When this conversation comes up, no matter how it's presented, what a lot of us who white hear in it is, oh, so you're saying I'm a racist. No matter what ends up getting said, what, what you end up hearing is, so you're saying I'm a racist. No matter what I do, no matter how I try to know how much I care about this, I'm a racist. So um, I want you to just kind of know where I'm going to go with these first two. I'm going to stick with your kind of macro theme and then the sub-themes. You guys are talking about identity, identity and race and culture, and that'll be really more of tomorrow. I think it's hard to get into that conversation if you don't have a little bit of a foundation for some of these terms from a biblical perspective. So we're going to go from today. I love that theme you all are doing of the abundant life. And I think that's one of the most picturesque and inviting images in the whole New Testament. When Jesus says, of course, that's in the larger backdrop of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, right? And I know my sheep and my sheep know me and they hear my voice and they listen to me. In John 10, 10, right, he says, I've come that we might have, that you might have life in all of its abundance, life in all of its fullness. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful promise. I love it, I love it. I've, for many years, I called that my life verse. I know many people who would say that that's their life verse. Such a wonderful promise, right? But even those, those who use that as our life verse, we don't always represent the other half of that verse in commensurate uh, importance, right? Because he actually says, I've come for, to bring you life abundance. Second, remember what he says first, right? There's a thief who comes to what? You know the verse, a thief who comes to what? And, and, yeah, steal, kill, and destroy, right? Um, and this is pretty consistent with how the Bible talks about the invitation of fullness of life. Um, that there's God's intentions and God's desires that we would know God fully and be known by God and experience that. But there's this warning that there's a very real kind of active presence of evil in the world. Right? In John 10, 10, it's called the thief, he's called the devil, he's called Satan, he's called, you know, many things throughout. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes Jesus would do some parable form. Matthew 13, I think it is, where Jesus says talking about kind of the kingdom of God, that the farmer drops seeds, right? And that there's the ravens of the air that come and try to snap up the seeds before they take. Right? There's just kind of this reality of evil in the world that wherever one might fall in that, where, you know, evil is trying to frustrate the purposes of God. And I actually, from my perspective, that's the most important biblical starting point for understanding what race is. Right? Um, while I think it's important that we think about identity and we think about interpersonal interactions, stuff like that, I think that's all secondary to the starting point of seeing race through the lens of the presence of evil in the world. All right? So some light conversation on Monday morning. We're talking about not only race, but the, the, the principality of evil that protects and guards race. But that's really kind of where we're going today. So, um, so through this kind of lens of abundant life and the evil one who tries to steal, kill, and destroy, if I have just kind of time to like develop one idea here with you today, if I go back to my own journey, I might tell more about this tomorrow, it was really in my 20s when I started seriously interacting with this. I think it was 24 at the time, I'm 46 now, so I've been pretty intensely studying race through a biblical lens for about 22 years now. Um, I'm gonna boil down to one concept that it took me about seven years to, to make this distinction, so hopefully I can do it in about seven minutes here. Um, uh, if I was gonna really start with one point, I would, I would, 
commend the importance of differentiating two terms that oftentimes get jumbled up together in the same sentence. In fact, when we're talking about race, one of the complications just in general is there's a lot of words that get used kind of synonymously. You know, we talk about multi-ethnic and multicultural and multiracial and intercultural, and there's all these different terms that kind of sound the same. Uh, I actually think that adds to a lot of confusion. I think there are some very distinct categories of how we need to think about this, especially biblically. And um, I would like to suggest two words, and I'm always going to risk oversimplification when in 20 minutes we're developing two different categories. But at, with that risk, I think it's worth doing it. Two totally different words, and I want to kind of think about the difference between them from a biblical perspective. So you in the middle don't get to participate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to label one on each side. You guys are going to be the side of ethnicity. So we all say ethnicity? All right, so that's the first term I want us to be thinking about. And then you guys, sorry, you get to be the bad one. Um, you get to represent the word race. Will you all say the word race? All right, I would like to suggest that understanding the difference between these two from a biblical perspective is super, super critical um, to understanding kind of what we're up against. And like right off the bat, I'll like, again, risk of oversimplification, but it almost comes down to this. Like from a biblical perspective, ethnicity is good. Everybody say good. From a biblical perspective, I would say race is bad. Say bad. Right? I would say ethnicity is from God. Race, I would say, is from the devil. I want to go that far to say it. If you only thought of one word to associate with, when you hear the word race used, in whatever setting you hear it, when you hear the word race used, if there was only one word that you would affiliate with the word race when you hear it, I would suggest the single word should be evil. That's how serious I think the system of race is. It is so evil and diabolical. Going back to John 10, 10, again, I think the devil uses a lot of different things to steal, kill, and destroy. My premise in life, and I don't have time to develop this fully, but you'll see where I'm going with this. My premise in life is that in the day and age we live, there is no tool that the devil uses more consistently to steal, kill, and destroy than race. I believe that. I believe whatever, whatever weapons are in the holster, race is the one that is doing the most damage to steal, kill, and destroy at every level, at a national level, at the church level, in communities, in, in our own individual lives. And so we'll get to that in a minute on race. So, uh, um, so let, let's start. This is where we'll kind of start jumping into slides. I'm about to cover a lot of information. You all right to so just move fast? You're a smart group, right? So we're just going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna keep moving fast. I want to I wanna kind of build on this idea of ethnicity a little bit from a biblical perspective. So um, the, the, the word ethnicity comes from the Greek word ethnos, when you look that up in Strong's, it defines that as a tribe, a nation, or a people group. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, before going to Matthew 28, I remember when I first started going on this journey of trying to understand race. Um, actually, let me pause here one second, because I do want to say, I actually think this is important to name as well, because I still think this is a problem. It was a bigger problem when I was your age, but it's still a problem. When I first started trying to understand race, I quickly came up to the dilemma that great Bible teachers rarely talk about race and great race thinkers rarely use the Bible. I want to say that again because that was a very serious problem. Great Bible teachers rarely talked about race and to some degree that's still largely true. We have a really anemic theology around race. If you pick the who's who of famous pastors, you got a lot of them here in Minnesota and St. Paul, right? If you pick the who's who and go through catalogs, I mean of course any church is going to say racism is bad. I'm not suggesting that, right? Any church is going to say to discriminate or look down upon somebody or treat somebody poorly or the extremes of KKK is doing something. That's bad. Of course, everybody's going to say that. But in terms of analyzing what race is and why it represents a threat to Jesus and his kingdom, it was, it was and is still pretty hard to find good theology around that. And then the best thinkers around race are very rarely in Christian circles. 
Um, it's, it's oftentimes in academic situations, situ um, uh, institutions, or you know what would be deemed liberal, you know, in a lot of conservative spaces. And so I say all that because when I started my journey, what everybody kept saying is, you're not going to understand race until you understand it's a social construct. Say those two words with me: social construct. Can you say that? Social construct. When they would say that, I would say, well, good, right off the bat, clearly we're not on the same page, because I'm coming from a biblical perspective that race is not a, a, a social construct. God is the one who created the human race, right? There's one race, the human race, God created that. And that created so much confusion for me. That's one of the reasons why I think this delineation is really important. I'm going to actually agree with them in a minute. When we talk about race, it is something created by human beings, which is why we have to understand ethnicity first. So when the Bible talks about ethnicity, it's talking about nations, tribes, people groups. So Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnoses, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of my favorite verses that I think gets to the beauty of what ethnicity is, the sovereignty of ethnicity. This is in Acts 17 when um, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Athenians at Mars Hill. And um, he, he talks about, he says, from one man, he's talking about Jesus, from one man made all the nations, which is again the word ethnos or where we get ethnicity, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in the history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, I'm moving quickly, I realize, but one of the reasons I like that so much is it reminds us that who you are, the, the combination of backgrounds, nationalities, nationalities, ethnic origins of you, none of that is happenstance. None of that is a mistake. All right? I'm half Irish. I'm half a bunch of other kind of European ethnicities, but the Irish one's the one I'm most in contact with. I've been to Ireland four times. My dad's been very big on finding, like, the little towns we come from. Like, I think all that is part of my story. That all of that is part of how God has built me. That is not anything to be ashamed of, um, to feel guilty of. Um, when we're talking about whiteness, we're talking about a category that got created for evil purposes. Ethnicity reflects something that God created. Uh, this, gets, this is a quote from uh, Sarah Shin, whose uh, her book, Beyond Colorblind, is one of my favorites on this. She says, white Americans have often thought of themselves as without an ethnicity, as if ethnic is a politically correct term replacing people of color. But the Greek word ethnos means the nations, and we are each descendants of ethnos. None of us are excluded from the invitation to recognize their ethnicity and to invite Jesus in. All right, so because of time, that's as much as I'm going to be able to do in ethnicity. I want to turn the corner now and talk about this word race, this system that was created for what I would say is inherently evil purposes. This next slide starts to give, sorry, I went one farther than I wanted to. Um, um, okay, yeah, that's the one I wanted to start. This slide I'm going to spend two minutes on, and it's worth a whole semester of critical race theory to be able to understand it. So my apologies if any of this is new. We just can't spend too much time on it. Um, when you, I, I, these, these first two are not even biblical ways of, of seeing it. This, is, this is, would be just kind of the general way race is talked about, even in, from a sociological perspective. Um, it's a social construct, meaning um, human beings created it for a purpose. And the fast definition of race is that um, based on perceived physical differences, the way somebody's hair looks, color of their skin, eye color, stuff like that, we create these categories, categories that we still largely use, though the meanings of them shift with time. 
the part that I think is important when we're going to start getting the biblical idea of this and where I think we have to look at this through the lens of even good versus evil, um, one of the phrases that I have found to be most important in this work is um, this phrase. It's been around a long time. It's been really popularized by Brian Stevenson, who's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and whose work I think is really important for our day and age. Um, it's this phrase, the narrative of racial hierarchy. All right, and so let me give kind of a 60-second overview of this. The narrative of racial hierarchy, um, this is, the idea is that when race was created with these differences, when, when we created this category called black, when we created this category called Indian or native, when we created this category called Asian American, created this category called Latino, Latina, Latinx, whatever the term, term to describe those of Central American, South American, Mexican backgrounds. When we created these categories, the, diff, the way we thought of the differences was not equal. We didn't think of it of like, yeah, everybody's kind of the same, they just look a little bit different. Um, this is what makes race so deadly. Race was created not in an equivalent differences, but on a hierarchy of human value. When the racial categories were created, they were created with intention of a messaging. That's where this term, the narrative, comes. It was, there was messaging behind the system of race that said races are not different inherently. Uh, they are different inherently, but they're, it's not an equality-based difference, it's on a hierarchy. And so freely from the very beginning, and this is what I'm gonna show it the rest of the time, from the very beginning, blackness was always put at the bottom, and I hate to say that out loud um, as a white guy saying that, but blackness has always been talked about as a subhuman category. Whiteness was a label created because back in the early days of our country, there wasn't such a thing as white. There was Polish and British and Italian and you know all the different ethnicities, but there's a category called white, and that became the messaging was that that's where the superior traits of humanity were found, was within whiteness. Which is, as an aside, though I realize it's a supercharged term to talk about white supremacy, I think it's a really valuable term because we're not talking about white people when we're talking about white supremacy. We're talking about an ideology that says the supremacy of human value is found in whiteness. And by definition, the inferiority of human value is found in blackness. And that's where the system started. It's never just a black and white conversation. But we have to understand throughout our history, the messaging around as different Asian immigrant groups started coming, as different Latino uh, groups became part of this, the messaging around who they were and their human value was found on the hierarchy between whiteness and blackness. And the closer somebody could be positioned to whiteness, the kinder the messaging would be, though it would still always say they're less than white. And the closer that they were pinned to the messaging of blackness is how they would be seen as dangerous to America. And so I'm going to give a definition of this narrative of racial hierarchy just, you know, to, to give you kind of a sense of how it works. I, I would propose that the narrative of racial of hierarchy is the operating system of white supremacy. It's a set of lies. This is why it's important to see it as an evil issue. It's a set of lies that assigns human values based on a person's proximity to whiteness, which is, would be superiority, or towards um, blackness, which would be inferiority. All right, let me see how I'm doing on time here. Um, let, let, let me do two minutes on this, and then I'm gonna, uh, um, sorry, I'm trying to make a call to, to, to how much we can cover in this amount of time. Actually, let me just, uh, let me just straight, jump straight to theology on this. I, I would really like to develop that idea um, uh, 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 more, but, let me make the explicit connection to evil, because otherwise we'll risk missing that. Evil's talked about in a lot of different ways throughout the Bible. I don't want everyone to oversimplify something, but when you study 
how the Bible talks about the devil, everybody kind of starts with John 8 because John 8 is the most explicit teaching that Jesus does on the devil in the whole Bible. And in John chapter 8, when, when having this very contentious argument with the Pharisees, this is how Jesus talks about the, the devil. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing a, I'm doing a four-week series right now in my own home church on just understanding the nature of the devil, and so that's how strongly I believe this is an important reality. But I just want you to sit in the depth of how Jesus describes the devil. The way the devil functions is through lies. He tells lies. In fact, those of you who speak more than one tongue, you know what an what a, what a interesting way this is to talk about it, that he has a mother tongue. The devil has a mother tongue. When he speaks his native tongue, it's that of lies. Right? In that last bit, when, when Jesus talks about him being the father of lies, there's so many things that I think are really important about that. But one of the places theologically where, what that's meant for me is if you want to, let me say it as straightforward as I know how, if you want to see where the devil is most at work in a society, look for not where there's just an individual lie, because wherever there's an individual lie, that's evil. But if you want to see where the devil is most at work in a society, look for where the lies are clustered together. Look for, that, this is where I think something goes from being an individual lie to becoming a principality. When lies are clustered together and protected and perpetuated by multiple different people over multiple periods of time, that's when something becomes an evil stronghold. Because that's who the devil is. He's a liar and he is the father of lies. And here's the connection point I'm trying to make today. That to understand race, I think you have to understand the lie that sustains the system. And the lie that sustains the system is the narrative of racial hierarchy. It is a lie that says whiteness is superior and blackness is inferior, right? In the Constitution, when taxes were being argued over and both white people and, white and black people were being represented in the Constitution, black people were called three-fifths human in the Constitution. That's what the narrative of racial hierarchy looks like, that white is five-fifths human, black is three-fifths human, everybody else finds their value based on this set of lies on that hierarchy. Now, could there be anything more confrontational to the gospel of Jesus Christ than there of a racial hierarchy? What does God say on page one of the Bible? Where does human value come from? Right, it comes from the imago Dei. We were created in the image and likeness of God. Right, that is the basis of human value from a biblical perspective, but the system of race has continually per per perpetuated and promoted this lie, this narrative that says, no, human value doesn't come from who you are in God's image. It comes from where you fall on the narrative of racial hierarchy. All right, so what I want to do, and this is going to be fast and it's going to be a lot, but I'm going to cycle through a series of quotes from presidents and political leaders since for, for pretty much from the beginning of American history. And doing so comes at a risk because politics can be a very charged thing. I hope you know I'm not doing this at all to be partisan. I'm not trying to make any kind of statement about either. In fact, I intentionally did half and half because I want you to see how common it is. But I want you to see how consistently the narrative of racial hierarchy shows itself up through U.S. history. So can you do this? Like, we're going to do like three minutes of intense quotes and then be done. But can you, can you cycle through three minutes of quotes you up for this? All right, I want to, and I'm going to go through these quick. There's not, there's not time to say much about them. But I'm going to start from the very beginning and, um, and, and kind of go through 
So, so let's start with Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers. It was called the Democratic Republican Party then, so we don't even have to worry about partisan back then. He said, amalgamation with the other color, which is when you intermarry, black and white at that point, amalgamation with the other color produces degradation to which no lover of his country, no lover of excellence in human character can innocently consent. 1823, James Madison, founding father, fourth president. Generally idle and depraved, appearing to retain the bad qualities of the slaves with whom they continue to associate without acquiring any of the good ones of the whites. You see the narrative of racial hierarchy in there? I think this one's important from Abraham Lincoln. Most would agree that he did some of the most important work around um, changing legislation, which I think is an important point. The idea being that the narrative of racial hierarchy is no respecter of persons. Even those who are on the right side are often inflicted by the narrative. He said, there's a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And as much as they cannot live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. You hear that? That's the narrative of racial hierarchy right there. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. This was from the Dred Scott case. I'm not going to spend much time on it. He just, he, he, the Chief Justice Roger Taney affirmed that historically blacks had always been seen so far inferior that they had no rights that white people had to respect. That was the Supreme Court that said that. I think this one's important from Jefferson Davis. This was, he was a senator from Mississippi, but importantly became the head of the Confederacy. The government was not founded by Negroes, nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. The inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. Do you hear the divine language in that, stamped from the beginning? Right, human beings can't stamp another human being, right? Only God can do that. It was appealing to the divinity of the narrative of racial hierarchy. Andrew Johnson said, it's vain to deny that black Americans are an inferior race, very far inferior to the European variety. They have learned in slavery all that they know in civilization. Theodore Roosevelt, a perfectly stupid race can never rise to a very high plane. The Negro, for instance, has been kept down as much by lack of intellectual development as by anything else. Woodrow Wilson, I stand for the national policy of exclusion. We cannot make a homogenous population of people who not blend with the Caucasian race. Oriental coolism will give us a yet another problem, and surely we have already had our lesson. All right, so this shows how it's not ever limited to just black and white when the narrative continues to develop. I'm going to skip all the way to Richard Nixon because we're running out of time. I think given how important pro-life is um, in conservative circles, I think seeing this intersection with race is a really hard one to see, but important. He said, I know there are times when abortion is necessary, rape, or when a black and white interracial pregnancy happens. See that? See the depth of the narrative of racial hierarchy? And again, this is not partisan. It's just showing how consistent this is. When we hear statements like this, where we don't want immigration from places like Haiti and Africa, which is the blackest of the black, we need immigrants from places like Norway, places whitest of whites, right? It's just simply showing this lie, this narrative has been around for so long. For those of us who are young, I think realizing that this is not a new thing. We've been fighting this battle for a long time, and this is what the evil one's been using for a long time. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of abruptly end, because I know you got to go to class, but can we kind of stand for closing benediction? And I'm just going to ask you 
to consider the words, again, of John 10, 10, as it relates to race. Jesus says, I've come to bring life in all of its fullness, in all of its abundance. I believe that with all of my heart. But we also remember the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. And when we think of race, we should think of it as one of the ways that the evil one's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. So go, knowing the abundant life of Christ, but being aware of the evil one. All God's people said, amen. amen.